Great to see everyone that's here tonight. It's a privilege, as always, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's great to have friends and people that I love that have driven to be here. And uh, I want to preach tonight about the idea or biblical teaching of repentance. Repentance is one of those words uh, that is hard to really get out of our mouth sometimes because it's one of those words that we sometimes can trip on. Listen to what the scripture uh, kind of definition that we can get from repentance. It, it's called for throughout the Bible. It talks about personal, absolute, and unconditional surrender to God as sovereign. It includes sorrow and regret, but it's more than that. I'm just giving you the high, high marks of this. You can look, look it up in pretty much any lexicon you want to talk about. But I'll give you some scriptures to go along with what we said. Repentance is not being sorry. There are lots of people that are sorry, but you can say uh, sorry about a lot of things, and that doesn't mean uh, that it's going to fix it. Uh, sometimes sorry just won't fix it. If you've been married for any length of time and you've had to apologize for some of the same grievances that you have accomplished in the past, you know what it is to say, well, that's not good enough. Sorry sometimes is not good enough. There needs to be change. Herod was exceedingly sorry whenever he cut John the Baptist's head off or allowed it to be done, but that did not fix the situation. It's not saying I'm sorry or confession. Judas confessed to betraying innocent blood. Guess what else? It's not restitution. It includes it. Sometimes you can't fix it. If you murder somebody, you can't, you can't fix that. If somebody's head gets lopped off, you can't go put it back on for them. It's not one of those deals where, okay, I killed somebody, so therefore I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up for it. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he was a man that knew what it meant to say that because he truly had killed people. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you kill somebody, don't raise your hand. It's going to freak everybody out. Don't do that. But I do want you to know that regardless of whatever you've done and whatever you've piled up in your life, the truth is there is a God in heaven that has a way to fix it with him. And that's something you should always be willing to praise and honor God for. Last of all, it's not forced. Sometimes you get in a moment where people can line you up and, and, and it's like, okay, I'm going to force you to do that. And, and I know this in school. My, my day job, what I do every day is, is I'm the disciplinarian. And you can tell the kids that come into your office, and some of them are like waterworks central. You know, they think their concept is, if I can cry, then naturally that's going to get sympathy. Wrong. That's not going to do it at all. But you can always tell the kids that walk in and say, I don't know why I did it. I did it. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen again. I really am sorry, Mr. Smith. And let me go apologize to whoever it is. Let me try to fix it. Those are moments where that's pretty easy. Then there's those that are like indignant. You know, they, they feel like somehow they're in there. It's the wrong thing and they're not going to be satisfied. And you may force them to go do whatever it is. But as one little boy said, I may go do it, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's kind of how we are sometimes. That's not how we can be with God. God's not interested in my lip service. He's not interested in me even saying holy, holy, holy. What he's interested in is that I become like him. He said, be ye holy as I am holy. There's a big difference between those two things. And our words sometimes can be cheap. And what God did is he put an entire package together. It includes being sorry. It includes saying I'm sorry. It includes trying to make up. But it's not forced, and it's something that you do in reference to the fact that you are in the presence of a sovereign God that is infinitely good. If he never does another thing good for you, if he never does another good thing for me, 
He is still worthy of all of my life of service and adoration and worship. Well, again, repentance can be complex. Jonah gave us kind of a picture of repentance when he came preaching it, uh, talking about faith and fruit. In Jonah 3 and 4, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Now, God had told him, go and preach to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go. And I think it's interesting that Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't like the people. You talk about scary ground to ever get on. You ever heard, don't judge a book by its cover? You've heard all those things all of our life, kind of everything we need to know we learned in kindergarten, but we forgot it as we grew up and we began to sometimes label somebody. We began to, to think that we understand somebody by whatever label it is. Well, there, was a, there were people that God wanted to show grace to, and Jonah was pretty much convinced, I don't want to help them. You're in a real bad spot if you can look at another human being and think or say in your mind, they're not worth it. You say that to the mirror first. Everybody in this room is worth it. Jesus did not die for nobodies. God did not send his son to die for people that are nobodies. He sent his son to die for people that were the object of his love. Nineveh was the object of his love, but they were living in complete rebellion to God. And so he wanted this preacher to go, and God, Jonah knew that God was going to try to make a way to save him, and so he ran from the situation. And after a series of events where he got swallowed by a great fish and decided he wanted to change and go do what God asked him to do, he shows up in this city. And he says, he cried out, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. An eight-word sermon. I know you're wishing for some eight-word sermons sometimes. Well, that is one right there. Eight words. Listen to what they did. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Guess what you have to do? If you're ever going to change your life, you've got to recognize there is a God in heaven for you to trust. There's a God in heaven for you to be convicted by. And of all the things that gospel preaching is for, it's to get in there in the gobbledygook and the mess of your life and convict you. Because that's the power of the word. Not me. It's not my use of words. It's not my volume. I can't help the volume. But the message of the Word of God will get in there and it's going to convict you. In fact, I'll tell you, preaching isn't preaching if it doesn't convict people of sin and give people the ultimate solution. Listen to what happened. So the people, they believed God, they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They were sorry, in other words. Verse 8 but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God, verse 10 says, saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. What did he see? He saw something in them. First of all, he saw people that were completely recognizing, hey, this is God. This really is God, and he's upset with us. Have you ever had a moment where you realize not only it's my bad, but what am I going to do to fix it? I'm going to tell you if that conviction aspect of what I just said a minute ago is so important to get there. When you mess up recognizing that there is a God in heaven that really is the one that's upset about it. It's not about mom and dad, not about grandma and grandpa, not about the preacher. It's about God. And if we could with one voice try to appeal to people and recognize that there is a sovereign and holy God that is offended by my behavior, the sooner I'll change my behavior. Because I'm not worthy of you changing. 
But God is worthy of me changing. He's worthy of you changing, and he demands it. And again, it came about with people that believed God and demonstrated it with fruit, and God relented of the disaster that he said he would bring. In Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh, Jesus said, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. I tell you the Old Testament story that tells you about the character of God. That's amazing. What's more amazing is that there is the Son of God referencing this story and saying, if you think that's a great story that ended well, think about this. They repented at the preaching of Jonah, but there are people that listen to me and about me that will not and choose not repent. What a horrible circumstance. He said one greater than Jonah is here. That was him. He's here. He's just as real today as he's ever been. He's just as alive as when he walked on the earth almost 2,000 years ago. His message is just as powerful today as it has ever been. And there are people that are without excuse as a result of the nature that God has created, but also because of the preaching of Jesus Christ. Jonah's preaching demonstrates faith and fruit. Well, John, the cousin of Jesus, came preaching as well. In fact, he was the guy that was kind of like the steamroller for Israel. Israel had gone into the period called the silent years, 400 years. They hadn't heard from anybody. They were looking for the Messiah, really, really looking, but it had gotten stale, and they had substituted true religion for a lot of it for a competence in their own bloodline. So John shows up, and he starts, uh, he really is not your normal guy. They were the people that thought about how good they looked. They were the people that would make broad their phylacteries and, and the people that were fakes and farces and imitations of what God wanted, they were all about the outward. John comes and he, he absolutely destroys people's pride and their selfishness and their evil ways. And he says things like this. In Acts 19, Paul referenced John and he said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Jesus Christ. Listen to some of John's teaching. Faith and fruit, this concept. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. We've talked about this already this week, but I want to say this again. Notice what John is, he's having two reactions. One reaction are Pharisees and Sadducees that stand up there basically like, we're here watching you, but we don't need you. Then there was another group that humbly came to John and recognized him for what he was. He was a man of God. He didn't have any miracles. He didn't perform any miracles. But the truth that he preached led them to confess their sins and they were baptized by a baptism of repentance. When's the last time you got through a day and you thought, okay, I've really messed up today? You ever have that on a, on a daily basis sometimes? You got something that's just working on your nerves. You got something that's working in your heart. Most sin honestly happens behind our eyes and between our ears. But you've got something that you've been working on. Let's just back up a little bit further from this conversation. And I want to ask, when's the last time you really got real with God and recognized that you've got sin in your life and you've got stuff that you've messed up on? Because if you've never had those conversations and you don't have those conversations weekly, you don't have those conversations daily, 
but at least weekly, you're in a real bad spot. You're in a real bad spot. Because here's what Paul wrote to people that believed that it's okay, don't worry about it. It's all going to work out okay. I, I, I've had a religious experience. I have, I have been saved once upon a time, but I'm not really worried about it because God's going to save me. It's going to work out okay. He said this, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how that are we that are dead to sin living in it any longer? See, you can't abuse grace. Grace is one of those things that's kind of tricky. It's not tricky. I don't want to make it sound tricky. I said tricky, bad word choice. Not tricky. Very clear. Grace is one of those things that is demonstrated to every man all over the world. Anybody, any man or woman in all the world can experience and live and grow in grace. But you don't want to mess with it. You don't want to take it for granted. You want to appreciate it every time you hit your knees and every time you face God and every time you get real about your sin and every time you need to make up with God because you've messed up. Very important thing about that. John had people confessing their sins and being baptized. He also had people that were resistant and to people that are resistant, to people that don't want to listen. Sometimes the only option that the preacher has is to be very plain and somewhat abrasive. He was abrasive. It ended up costing him his head when he preached against the marriage of Herod. What does God require? Fruits worthy of repentance. There is a way, there is something that is demonstrated when we talk about repentance that is first through faith and absolutely produces fruit. Well, in Romans 3.23, the Bible says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All must repent. That's a faith and fruit issue. The Apostle Paul said, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Jesus said, but he said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He said this about his miracles and repentance. He began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works were done because they did not repent. Woe unto you, Chorazin, he said, woe unto you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in that day of judgment than for you. This is big stuff. Jesus is basically making a comparison and helping people understand that repentance is a very big deal for everybody. So I'm just going to get the first, if you're taking notes, this is the very first point of really of the lesson. And it goes like this. Everybody sins and everybody's got to figure out what repentance is. Not my definition of it, God's definition of it. And Jesus had plenty to say about it. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to talk about it. Jesus talked about comparatively miracles that he had done. His mighty works, he said Tyre and Sidon would still be around. They would have repented. You know what happened to Tyre and Sidon? God wiped them off the map and literally made them as the flat, as, uh, flat as the top of a rock so that people would dry their nets where a city used to be. And that's the truth. You know what else about Sodom? The sins of Sodom, I think everybody pretty much old enough knows about all that. At the end of the day, God was repulsed by the sin of Sodom. They could not find just a select number of souls. And Lot, the nephew of Abraham, made it out with his two daughters. Didn't even make it out with his wife or his son-in-laws. And God wiped him off the face of the earth and he said, It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why would he say that? 
Here's why he says that. Whenever you look at the Bible, you're looking at 66 books today. Now, that's how we divide it up. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament has 39, New Testament has 27. Today, we're sitting here. I've got the entire thing right here. If you can't read, I'll get you an audio. If we can't read or we can't hear, we've got Braille. Any, any person in all the world that is a responsible human being can learn this. We've got people right now in Cambodia that cannot read, they cannot write, but they can have a solar-powered uh, recording device that has Scripture on it, and they can hear the Word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What I know is that from Genesis to Malachi, God basically sets the scene for how He's going to operate and how He's going to bring Jesus into the world, and He demonstrates Himself as an incredibly amazing God. And he saves a little bitty group that just rebelled against him and messed up. If you ever want hope for your life, read the Old Testament. You're going to find people in there that mess up over and over and over and over. And every time God makes a way to bring them back whenever they get themselves in a tight and they realize, I need to come back. I need a way back. And you find that you have a God of mercy. He's not a God that wants to just hide behind the bushes and beat you down. But then you get to the New Testament and you find something superior. It's a new covenant. The old covenant was, was dedicated with the blood of animals. The new covenant was dedicated with the blood of Jesus Christ. That obviously is superior. The new covenant is the last one. There's not going to be any more. In fact, there's not going to be any more sacrifices that will do anything for you. If you reject this sacrifice of Jesus Christ and His will, there's no other plan that He has. So the question is this. When you hear Jesus preached and you understand from Genesis to Malachi has been fulfilled in Jesus, and you open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read the, the birth and the life and the death of Jesus Christ and His burial and resurrection, then you get to the book of Acts and you find out this is the Lord's church and this is how the church was established. Then you get to Romans through the rest of the Bible, and these are letters written to churches that were messing up people that had problems and special needs and challenges. You know what we find out? We find out that we have a God that wants to fix and help and straighten us out even when we mess up just like the Israelites did. You know what He expects you to do and me to do? He expects us to look into the perfect law of liberty and not be a forgetful hearer but a doer of the Word. That's what James says. And that's what we have to be. So when the Bible calls upon us, when Jesus calls upon us to, to repent and He makes these comparative statements about Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, what He's basically saying is they didn't know about the death, burial, and resurrection. They did not know. They did not know about, about me at all. They did not realize, they did not recognize that I was the Son of God. You do know. You're witness to who I am. You're witness to my power. Everybody in this room tonight, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, please, I beg of you, I beg of you. I'm not going to spend the time right now. But if we need to spend time, I don't care if it takes all night. I don't care how long it takes. I want to convince you with the Word of God and with history that Jesus is the Son of God and I can do it. If you're here tonight and you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, please, I beg of you, don't leave here tonight in that situation. Don't live in doubt. Don't live in what our culture tries to raise questions about. Think about that for just a second. Jesus expects us to recognize He and His teaching for who He is and what He is, and He expects us to repent. He expects everybody to repent. Well, Christians must repent too. Sometimes people get to thinking, well, you know, when I'm a Christian, then it's all going to be good and there's no big deal. One couple of things you learn from Scripture right out the gate. First of all, when you look at 1 John chapter 1, before we get there, think of this. 
What John will teach you in the gospel as well as the book is this. You are a sinner. Don't ever say you're perfect. Don't ever say you don't have anything to fix. But by the same token, you don't stay in that situation of ignorance and say, well, you know, ignorance is bliss. Don't, don't show me any more of the Bible. In fact, I want to know, know the least amount possible that I have to know to be saved. That's not how we live. That won't work either. He places a restriction on that. So I can't say I'm perfect. So anybody that says you're preaching a gospel that says you've got to be perfect. No, the gospel plainly says if you say you are, you're a liar. But it goes on to talk about how Christians fix it. We've got we to gotta recognize we're not perfect. But we got to live according to a high standard and we hold ourselves accountable to it. And then when we do mess up, there's a way we can fix it. And it doesn't have to drag on and on and on and on and on. You know, the part about why we want you to be baptized tonight is you've drug on and on and on and on and on now. I hope not too long to where it's grown cold inside of you. Or, or there's a guy back home that uh, he, he said that literally. He said, you know, he, at one point in time, he said, I was going to be baptized. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to be baptized. He kept saying it. That's all he did to say it. He never was. Then all of a sudden one day he heard a sermon about six months to a year later that really convicted him and he literally ran to the water. He grabbed a guy on the way out the door and said, go baptize me right now before something gets in my head and changes my mind. You stop and think about what he was convicted about on that. Whenever you're a Christian, we're called to walk in the light of God's word. Here's what the scripture says. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. That's important. I can't say I don't have sin, so do I say, you know, this is what I hear a lot of my friends say, well, we're all sinners. Now, that's true, but I also want to fight it a little bit, so let me qualify it. Here's, here's really what that means. We're all sinners. You worry about your sin. In fact, I'm going to give you a pass for your sin. I'm going to make you feel better about anything you've done wrong, but I want you to make me feel better about what I've done wrong. So what I'm going to say is, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Make me feel good about what I've done wrong. I'm going to make you feel good about what you've done wrong, and we'll all feel good about it. The problem is this. Let me point out to you. I'm not the one that justifies you. The Bible says, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Who's going to forgive you your sins? Not me. So if I give you a pass for how you feel, or worse yet, the worst deception in the world, when I look into the mirror and say, Cullen, I really think God's going to give you a pass for that. Whether I'm trying to give myself one or you're trying to give me one, doesn't help a thing. But there's somebody that's dying to justify us and to forgive us, and his name is God. He longs to. He wants to. My little children, he said, these things I write unto you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Listen to what he says. By now we know that we know him. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. Now stop and think about that for a second. You back up and you, you really back up from this. So we have a God that says, you're not perfect. 
When you mess up as a Christian, you got to do what? He said, we have to confess our sins. Now, why is that unique? Why is that important? Here's why that's so important. A couple of ways that takes place. That's not necessarily, in fact, that's not going to be a, a, a picture of a public confession. Okay? It's not what it is. Now, I'm all for somebody coming forward in church and needing prayers of the church. We're to pray for each other all the time anyway. What's, I don't know anybody that would disagree with that. I don't know anybody that would fight that. And yes, whenever we get overtaken in sin, one of the most important things you will ever do is have other people fighting for you to overcome that sin. God is certainly listening to the herd, and you need to be a part of the herd, the church. But when you sin, you have somebody very, very important on your side, and here it is. In the Old Testament, that Genesis to Malachi, here's how it was. You were a person that sinned. You brought your animal sacrifice, and let's say that Chris is a Levitical priest. I hand it off to him. He begins to prepare it. He's got his own robes. He does all the stuff that's necessary. He, he makes atonement for my sin. But there's another guy that's going to go in. He, does that. He, he performs that worship in the holy place in the temple. But then there's another guy who is of a certain lineage, of the lineage of Aaron, and he's the high priest. And let's say Terry was the high priest. So we got a Levitical priest, and, and I hand it off to him, and, and he does this for me. And then I've got a high priest that goes in for everybody. And he takes the blood of an animal and he prepares himself just so. And he goes into the most holy place that would kind of make you think about this communion table right here. Overlaid in gold. Had a pot of manna that had never spoiled. It had a, a, a rod, Aaron's rod that had miraculously budded. And it had the Old Testament law that God had written on those tablets of stone. The second set. Amazing. That high priest goes in to this most holy place and he offers animal blood for his own sins and the sins of everybody else. When Jesus came, let me tell you why it is today. You don't, you don't have to confess your sins to a man before you talk to God. You're a priest. When Jesus died, the Bible says he became the high priest. The old high priest, there's no such thing. As a high priest today of the lineage of Aaron, they don't exist. You couldn't, tra you couldn't track them down if you wanted to. Jesus took the place of that high priest, and the Bible says, we're all priests. Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 says, we have a high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, and he was in all point tempted like we are, yet without sin. So when we come to God, when we come and we come boldly to the throne of grace, the Bible says... That's not how they did it in the Old Testament. They didn't come boldly. They came afraid. They came in fear. And the only thing their sacrifices did in their, their situation was roll their sin forward another year until they could do it again. Not a really great system, you might say. But we have an amazing system. We have an amazing plan because our, our sacrifice was Jesus. His cousin John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's your picture of the perfect sacrifice. The Hebrew writer said he went into the heavens. The high priest on earth in the Old Testament, they only offered animal blood and it was here on the earth and it was one of those deals that God would allow them to escape for another year. And literally they'd send a scapegoat into the wilderness with their sins. Jesus Christ did not run and he didn't escape. 
God put everything that you've ever done or I've ever done on his back. And he died an awful, cruel death because that's what our sins warranted. That's what we deserved. And so today, when you mess up as a Christian, you need to run to the one that went through it, walked through it, and dealt with it. The only difference is he was tempted like we are, yet he didn't mess up. And what he's going to do is he's going to communicate to the Father, God the Father, who is a spirit that does not know what it's like to put on flesh and blood, and he makes the Father understand. Have you ever had a situation where you were sitting in a room and you thought you understood a set of circumstances and then when you got a few more facts, you changed your mind quick? One of the most compelling, I think it was MacArthur or one of those guys, wrote about a story about a man who was on a train one time and it was a, it was a very uppity part of town. And this guy got on the train with his kids and his kids were bouncing off the walls. And the story goes that this man that was their father, obviously their parent was sitting there and he was looking out the window and just oblivious to everything that was going on. And finally, these kids bumped into this guy, some hoity-toity guy. You know, you always hate that guy. But he got upset about it and says, Hey, look, take care of your kids. If you're one of those people that you're upset about little kids, bless your heart, you forgot you were one one time. And you're just replicating the bad behavior of a bunch of old folks that treated you bad when you were little. And don't do that. Shame on that behavior. That's an awful set of behavior. But the reality is this man stopped what he was doing and said, I'm really sorry. You see, we just came from the hospital and their mother just died. And we really just don't know what we're doing right now. Instantly, those facts changed everything. Changed everything. Let me tell you how this goes down. You mess up. You better be talking to the right person. You better be talking to the right person. Don't talk to the wrong people. You know, don't go talk to your friend. Yes, they, they may have some good advice. You better be talking to the one that's going to make the father understand because he's the one that can make the father say, I'm going to forgive him this. And the reason he's going to make that possible, the reason why that is possible, is the Bible says that if we walk in the light, part of us walking in the light is when we mess up, we fess up. If I take a step out of the light, my next step is to fess up and ask for God to strengthen me and help me with that. He goes on to call us little children, my little children. These things I write unto you so that you may not sin. In other words, I don't want you to keep practicing sin. But when you mess up, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Then he says something amazing. He said, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. High standard here. And he says, I know, he, and he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You don't want to be in this spot. None of us do. We want to walk in the light. God's going to deal with every hypocrite that's ever existed in the church. And I can promise you, at some point in time, we're going to be in, in a spot where we've got to really be careful about this. I don't want anybody leaving here thinking that they got to be careful in the sense of that God's looking for a way to wreck your relationship with Him. That's just not true. You can't read the Old Testament and, and, and see God and His relationship with Moses and the Jews, especially in the wilderness, without thinking, wow, we serve an amazing God that will bear with us through a lot of junk. Because they put God through a lot. Every Christian must repent when we sin. Confession and repentance are connected. The Bible says in Acts 8, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Now, 
Again, I, I want you to understand how this worked. When he saw the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. Here's a good example of first century miracles. These guys that were apostles had seen Jesus rise from the grave and they had the power to come up to somebody else and say, I'm going to lay on hands on you and I'm going to give you the power for as long as you live to perform miracles in the name of Jesus. Why did they do that? They did that because the Word of God had to be verified and there was no revelation that was complete yet. They didn't have a Bible to go to. They, certainly most of them didn't, none of them, hardly any. Any of them had an Old Testament copy. You just, there were a lot of things that they needed to know. And so God, in a miraculous way, gave people His Word and protected it. And He gave it to a lot of people. And so they were able to not only perform miracles, but they were able to teach without making a mistake. Now, I can't teach without making a mistake. That's why you got to be on your toes. I need you to be able to write notes and, and listen to this and judge it by what the Bible says because I'm a man and I, nobody has laid their hands on me and given me a supernatural gift or a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. Back here though, this guy, Simon, saw the apostles lay hands and the Holy Spirit was given. Now that was demonstrated. It demonstrated itself in power. And he offered them money saying, Give me this power also that anyone whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He was thinking about it. You know what? These guys, they, they can make a killing selling this. That's not how it was going to go. But Peter said, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now here's a good example. This guy messed up royally. He didn't just have, he didn't just have a misunderstanding. He had an agenda. And he wanted this bad. And when all of a sudden, Peter wrecks his plan, and by the way, this teaching about money right here is a big deal. You're not saved by money. You're not saved by what your money will do. You're saved by the grace of God and what can't be done and can't be bought with money. There were a lot of people that thought when you got money, that that means salvation. That's almost exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught. Be careful about money. You either be in charge of your money or your money's going to be in charge of you. And here's an example of a guy that his money was in charge of him. And when Peter convicted him of his sin, he said, you need to pray God. How would he do that? Did he have to go find somebody else? Did he have to go to the temple to do that? No. You have a right as a priest, a child of God, somebody that's been baptized into Christ. You have the opportunity to approach God through Jesus. But you also have the right to ask somebody else to pray for you. Because he, he said, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. You know what I want? I want to pray for me and I want other people praying for me too. And I hope our human pride doesn't get in the way of that. Because that's exactly what it is when it happens. Make sure we understand. Confession and repentance are connected. He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. You know how many people I have talked to that have said, you know, when I finally came clean with God about whatever it was, I, I felt like the weight of the world was off of me. 
You want to know why that is? Because you can fold it and tuck it. You can do a thousand things with trying to fix your sin, but you can't do it. I think about this back home. Sometimes we'll get people call us and they'll say, you know, uh, we're going to be there. Uh, we're coming by to see y'all. Uh, okay, when are you showing up? Because we like a two-hour warning, just so you know. A two-day would be better, but two hours at least, not two minutes. Because let me tell you what happens when, in our house. We live in our house. Not, not ashamed to say that. I'm not criticizing any part of how it, we just live there. But I can tell you what happens. I can move some freight to hiding whenever you show up at my door. If you say, we're in Farmerville, we want to come by. Okay, give me just a minute. And I get off the phone, a bunch of screaming and yelling takes place. You grab a bunch of stuff, you go to the nearest place, and you shove it, tuck it. You do everything you can to rack, stack, and pack it. You know what happens, though, when people show up? Oh, I love your house. Oh, this is great. They have no idea that behind that door, if you open it, all manner of evil would jump on you. But you know what happens? After they leave, that still has to be dealt with. That hadn't gone away. I may have shoveled it in the back room, and you may not open that door, and you may think perfectly well of me, but there's a room with a bunch of junk in it. Listen, if you've got a room with a bunch of junk in it, you better figure out who it is that can help you clean it out because you will not fix it by yourself. You won't do it. Mankind does not possess that power. That's not God's plan. God is fair and we have a choice. The Bible says, When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity that he has done that he dies. When a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he has committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. In other words, God won't let you put your life on cruise control. Don't think that I've done some good stuff and I've been baptized once upon a time and I'm just going to push the cruise control button. That's not what he said. By the same token, maybe, just maybe, you at one point in your life, you were doing good and you went off in the ditch and you think that I'm worthless and I, I can't be saved and there's things I, I just don't feel like I can be forgiven of. You make the choice that you want to serve God, and I'll tell you about a God that can forgive you of anything you've done. And you get right back up on the straight and narrow road, and guess what? He said, you've made the choice to accept my grace. You've made the choice to get back in the light of my word, and that choice is going to save you. Because he considers and turns away from all his transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Of all the things that I wish I could put in a capsule and give people a pill and a glass of water and allow them to put it in their mouth and wash it down and then 30 minutes later it take effect is this. Get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Oh, how I wish that people could recognize that of all the misery and all the doubt and all the guilt that they deal with, there is a new heart and a new spirit that only God can give you. And it's available, and it's available whenever you get good and ready. The problem is Satan and sin are confusing, and they're convicting of their, on their own. The Bible says the wicked man 
is holding literally with the cords of his own sins. Sin takes on its own dimension. It takes on its own brain, so to speak. And it does everything possible to convince us there's no new heart and new spirit. If I've messed up and I'm in the ditch, I'm just in the ditch. No, you're not. No, you're not. Jesus told his church to repent. Here's where it kind of the rubber meets the road. The Bible says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. This is the good stuff. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You've per persevered and have patience. You've labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Two things from this I want to get, well, three things. First of all, they had a lot of good things going on in their church. I don't know any church you can think of that doesn't have some good stuff going on. I don't know it. But I know this was, the, this was the Lord's church. This wasn't Cullen's church. This one wasn't started after AD 33. This wasn't, this wasn't because of some religious division. This was a church at Ephesus that was founded in Acts the 18th chapter by the Apostle Paul. Acts 19 tells us a little bit about that congregation. An entire letter was written to that congregation. And here you have a situation where the church is told they have to repent. Has anybody ever told you that all people sin and they must repent? Christians sin and we must repent. Churches sin and they have to repent. Why do churches have to repent? The Bible says... Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The light. You don't want the Lord to take His lampstand away. If you do, the Bible tells us that if we walk in the light, we have fellowship. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. What He's basically saying is, you're going to listen to me, you're going to listen to me, or you're not going to be recognized as one of my churches. How is it that churches are supposed to fix themselves? Here's a very simple way. You take this Bible and you read it for what it is. The truth of God's Word. And you do what it says. You do what it says for yourself. You do what it says for the church. You see, the church doesn't have a right to just do whatever we want to do. The church is the body of Christ. The head of the church is Jesus. And He exercises authority over the church Ephesians 5.23 says He is the head of the body. He is the Savior of the body, the church. In Ephesians 1, about verse 21 through 23, He establishes, or 22 especially, He establishes the fact that He exercises complete authority and dominion and His sovereign right over the church. That's people. What if the people in the church decide we're not going to do what the Bible says? He said like this, this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You know what the deeds of the Nicolaitans were? It was compromise. 
He told the Ephesian church, I'm proud of you about that. What was their real problem? He said, you've left your first love. Did you know God is not some sort of an inanimate object where we just basically decide we're going to push the program button? We, 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 we've checked all the boxes and that He is just this, this being up there that is robotical and, and that He doesn't have any emotion whatsoever. No. He said, you've left your first love. Who are you in love with? Oh, you're like, oh, I love my wife. I really do. Love my kids. I see some people here with grandkids. I oh, love those grandbabies. You can tell. You can tell. Guess what God can too? God can too. Back home, there's a guy. Uh, he is from El Cajon, California. Actually, he's from Mexico. But he works in El Cajon, California. His name is Elias Rodriguez. And if you know Elias, I, I've never met anybody like him. But I'm telling you, some of the people that he has worked with us to convert back home in a bilingual congregation, there's about 50 people that, that every Sunday assemble with us. And about, anyway, there's also a congregation in Progresso because of this and on and on I can tell you about. But one day we sat down and we began to talk about the work. And he said, listen, here's what my plans are. I want to do this on this day and I want to do this on this day. Literally, now think about this. Sunday, got worship. You ever been a part of a bilingual service? Sometimes they go long. They go long. You try to get around to talk to everybody in a big group. It's tough to do. Get out of there. You got Sunday worship. You got Wednesday worship. 70 people show up of the 100 that are usually there. 70 people show up on Wednesday night. Again, bilingual. Two-hour Wednesday night chapter studies. I'm like, man, that's a lot. That's a lot. Then, guess what else happens? Well, I study with, uh, I study with uh, basically there's about... 15 different families. I study with each one of them during the week on my own, Leah said. But I'll tell you what, there's some opportunities to study with somebody here and here and here. And I'm like, whoa, man, are, hang on just a second. You ever heard of the word burnout? You're going to burn some folks out. He's like, he smiled and said, no. He said, was there anything you wouldn't do when you fell in love with your wife? Mm -mm. Nope. Not one thing. I'd drive, do whatever it was. Didn't matter. Nothing I wouldn't go get. He said, that's exactly what I'm talking about with Jesus Christ. These people are in love with Jesus Christ. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve and I'm going to feed. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat that just like the most important relationship in their life. And they're going to devote as much time and attention and effort and study because it is the number one relationship in their life. And I'm convinced the more that I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a whole lot of people that think they can slide in and slide out and they have the same Ephesian problem. They're strict doctrinally. They know what the Bible says. I get it. I understand it. I'm never going to change from that. But there's somebody that better be the number one love in your life and it's demonstrated. It's demonstrated. It shows up. You can do so many things right and if God is not the number one love, the first action of your heart, your soul, and your mind, we're in a, we're in a mess. He better be number one. My goal tonight in preaching this sermon Maybe a sermon on repentance, but I want you to think about it. You serve a God that ought to be number one. He deserves to be number one. And there was a church that called themselves His that had fallen out of love. And listen, this wasn't written, this wasn't written down by some guy. This was recorded. This was the revelation of Jesus Christ. He gave the review Himself. So, very important stuff. 
We can't compromise anything, but we can't ever forget God is our first love all of our life. For the church to be alive, it requires zeal and repentance. To the angel of the church in Sardis, another one of the seven churches of Asia, he said, these things says he who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. Don't take your relationship for granted with God. Let me go back a second and say this about the church. When he, wrote, when he talked about the church and the doctrines, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm convicted to say tonight from God's Word. If there's something that we need to change that we're doing wrong in the Bible, show it to me tonight, we'll stop it. If there's something we need to start doing, we'll start doing it. But every church, in order to be the church of Jesus Christ, has to make the same commitment. And you've got to put your money where your mouth is. If there's something the church of Jesus Christ here that meets here in this place will not change, it won't be long before this is not the church of Jesus Christ. God gives a space for repentance. He gives some time. But at some point in time, that time's going to be up. I know people that have been a part of churches before that they recognize that this is what the Bible says and we're not doing that. And they brought it to the leadership of the church and the leadership of the church said, you know what, we're not going to do that. Yeah, but that's what the Bible says. The Bible says we have to do this. And the leadership said, we're not going to change. We're not going to do what that says. Please help me understand how that could possibly be the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. In Revelation 3.19, he said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chase, and therefore be zealous and repent. You ever had somebody that, that is amazing? I, I, I bring up Elias Rodriguez a lot. I want to tell you a story real quick. Because it illustrates the beauty of a culture that I did not understand prior to this work, but it also illustrates a man's heart that is willing to change. His name is Perfecto Torres. Perfecto is an awesome guy. Um... I don't know how old he is, maybe 50-something years old, hard worker, Lana Bain, Julie can tell you, just an amazing guy. He led his wife to Jesus. They were the party central. They were the people that drank and partied, period. They were the life of the party. Not only that, Perfecto's one of those guys that you better pack a lunch if you ever went to pick a fight with him because he'd mop the floor with you. He was the brawler of the group. Not only that, there was another guy. This guy came to Jesus. He was saved. He was baptized for the remission of his sins, and he has been following so closely the walk that I'm, I'm extremely proud to call him my brother in Christ. But there's another guy that was, that was also converted, and he was a guy that had challenges as well. And in his former life, he and Perfecto didn't like each other. And at his baptism, Perfecto came to Brother Elias and said, what am I going to do? I don't like this guy. In fact, I've, I've beat this guy up before. This guy's not good people. And he said, he used to be your enemy. He used to be your enemy. But God's fixing to make him your brother. You know what happened after he was immersed into Christ? Perfecto went up to him and said, I'm your brother. And he hugged him. That's the power. That's the power of Jesus Christ. That's the power of Jesus when somebody is zealous to want to do what the will is, that wants to, to throw away all the disease of sin and the sickness of sin that infects so many of us. That's the power. 
of the God that we serve. That is his power today. Well, I got to hurry on. Love and fear make people repent. In Romans 2 verse 4, he says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of, of revelation, righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they're going to get indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul basically says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the goodness of God leads a lot of people to repentance. You mean to tell me there's a God in heaven that loves me so much he sent his son to die for me. That message has converted untold numbers of people in the world. Then there are other people like me that had to be told, hey, you better get it right or you're going to go to hell. Whichever one. It leads people. It doesn't finish the job. It doesn't, start, it doesn't finish the relationship. But both fear and love are motivators to lead people to repent. Jesus said, I say unto you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Listen to me very carefully when I say this. There ought to never be a time where we're not thrilled out of our tree when somebody makes up their mind they're going to fix it with God. It ought to make us so excited. It ought to make us so excited. I'll never forget the time that I saw this not happen. There was a, a woman that basically decided she wanted to live a certain lifestyle. Her husband was there. It was one of those deals. And he came forward to make a confession, and she got up and stomped out. I have never forgotten that. It's one of the greatest tragedies in all the world. Because of all the things that we have a responsibility to do, as the body of Christ, Jesus said, many things like, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Of all the ways that I can be like God, if there's more joy in heaven over 90, over one sinner than 99 just persons, the one thing I can do from this parable that he taught us is I run and fall on the neck of that one and kiss him and show him that I'm so glad he's back. That's our job. You want to know what your job is? It's not to be the elder brother. The elder brother expressed his lack of relationship and lack of knowledge of who God was. And he sat out in the field and pouted over the prodigal that was coming back. And the Bible says that whenever that moment happened, the father went out and even entreated him. And I'm convinced that the teaching of God's word in the church is so important today to all of us. Because sometimes you're caught like a cat by the back of the neck. You're not sure when to which and what to say. Let me tell you this. I love you and I want you back is a real good thing to say. Because that's what heaven's doing. That's what heaven's doing every time the gospel is preached. I love you and I want you back. And every time you get an opportunity to hear the gospel, you need to understand that if you're away from God, he's saying to you right now, I love you and I want you back. This scripture is scary to me, but it's also hopeful. God's a God that keeps his promise and he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. One day, one day, 
God's patience is going to give way. And if you're here tonight and you're thinking, God's going to give me more time, you may be right. You may be right, but you may be wrong. This woman came to Jesus in the most dejected spot of her life. She was caught in the very act of adultery. She came to Jesus and Jesus drew on the ground after he had basically dispensed the rest of the crowd that was in a mob. He said, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Do you know the teaching that is so incredible in that? It's not one of those deals where we justify sin. It's one of those deals of be real careful before what somebody else is doing wrong becomes an obsession of ours, of our mouth. Real careful thing. Listen to what he says to her. He asked, where are they all at? She said, no one. Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. She met the light of life that day. And of all the things I don't know that I would love to know from Scripture, I would love to know what happened to this woman right here. But I am convinced and convicted that I have seen what has happened to this woman and this individual in just this same circumstance time and time again. If you will give your heart to the Lord and you will give your life and devotion to Him, I promise you'll know the light of life, the light of the world, and He'll light up your life. There is a picture that God gave us that sums everything up about the death, burial, and resurrection. He asks us to repent and be dead to sin. He asks us to be buried in water for the remission of our sins and rise again to walk in newness of life. That man I was telling you about, Elias Rodriguez, is right there, and that's one of our sisters in Christ, Claudia Martinez. She got up after she had made her decision to follow the Lord, and she literally had to change churches. The church she was a part of, she had been convicted that it was good and it was fine, but she found out that there were things they would not change. She tried to study with them. They would not change them. She decided she was going to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. She was immersed. It fit the picture of this right here. Just like they did in the early church. She died to her sin. She was buried in water. She rose to walk in newness of life. As she walked up the bank, I'll never forget it, she said to a sister in Christ, what's my responsibility now? Let me tell you what your responsibility now is. Live like a child of the King. Live like Jesus every day of your life. The blood that Jesus gave is for the remission of sins. Whenever people are baptized, the Bible says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises to you and to your children and those that are afar off, and to as many as the Lord our God shall call. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, won't you come and repent? We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m., and 5 p.m., and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.